Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. To 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you have any doubt whatsoever that our church is committed to expository preaching and teaching, tonight we'll remove all doubt. Because this is one of those passages that people are happy to skip and pass over, but we will not. For those of you that are new or for those of you that haven't quite caught on, we're actually moving through the book of 1 Corinthians during this academic year. And so we'll be finishing it uh, at the beginning of summer. But tonight we find ourselves in chapter 11, chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. And for the sake of time, we're going to move through it. I'm going to exposit through it. I've got three points tonight. So just you get the, the bird's eye view of the structure for this section. The best I could do was break it up into point one, imitate the apostles and their traditions. That's the first two verses. We're going to spend a lot of our time on those first two verses. Secondly, understand that authority is theological. Understand that authority is theological. That's verses 3 to 10. Um, Really quickly, I want to point something out. So Jake, my brother, I talked with him the other night about the fact that he's always looking away from me. And I'm beginning to feel really insecure about it when I'm teaching he looks away from me. And I just, (laughs) I look over and he's been staring. So what are you looking at? He told, he swore that he is looking at his Bible on his leg, but there's, (laughs) I know you got your Bible. What are you looking at? (laughs) That's what I thought. I am so sorry for distracting, but he, I look over and (laughs) Okay, you and me both, and you're not helping me. Third point, third and final point. In Christ, men and women are distinct and interdependent. Distinct and dependent on one another. So first, imitate the apostles and their traditions. Paul says it very plainly in verses 1 and 2. Be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. This is amazing. Paul, the once self-righteous Pharisee turned apostle, says, be imitators of me. Mimite mu. You can hear it in Greek. Mimite mu. Imitate me, mimic me. We actually get the word meme from this verb in Greek. I bet you didn't know that you actually do know some Greek. Act like me. Now, is this Paul thinking highly of himself? Sounds like an awfully confident thing to say, doesn't it? Imitate me. Well, what will he say 
in chapter 15. If you flip over to chapter 15, verses 9 to 10, Paul will write there, I am the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God before Christ saved me. I was attacking Christians, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Is Paul humble or proud? He's humble, isn't he? He's humble. It's like being what he said is like being the worst player in the Hall of Fame, though. He's looking, he sees everyone in the Hall of Fame and he says, I I don't belong here. I'm the worst of these guys. But to us, we hear that and we say, that's still not bad. I mean, if you made it to the Hall of Fame, if you made it to be an apostle, well, that's still pretty good. Keep listening. Paul wrote those words in 54 AD-ish, roughly 20 years after his conversion. He's been walking with the Lord for 20 years when he says those things. Nearly 10 years later... After he wrote 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, the Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8, where he says, not I'm least of the apostles, but to me, the very least of all the saints, the very least of all the Christians, this grace was given again. He's humbled by grace. This grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles, to the nations, the good news of the unfortunate fathomable riches of Christ. He is no less humble than he was before, but he's discovering deeper and deeper just how humble he ought to be. Now, so he says, not only am I the worst player in the NFL, in the uh, Hall of Fame, I'm the worst player in the NFL. Now we still would say, that's still pretty good. You make it to the NFL, you make it to professional level sports, that's pretty good, Paul. But every year, Paul is as humble as God has brought him in view of Christ and the grace of God alone. The next year, in just a year's time, a few years before he dies, Paul writes a young pastor by the name of Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 to 16, he says, again, he's marveling at grace and marveling at grace has made him understand just how low he is. I am grateful to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he made me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. He's given me my belief in Jesus. He's given me the the grace and, and the love for Jesus that I have. Everything that I've received is grace from him. It is a trustworthy saying and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 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 among whom I am chief, chief of sinners, worst of sinners. Yet 
For this reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Christ Jesus might demonstrate all his patience as an example for those who were going to believe upon him for eternal life. Fascinating. He fell from worst of the apostles to worst of all believers to worst of all sinners. How? What dropped him there? Because he, he never understood the gospel as much as he did at the end of his life. What, what, how else would he plummet to those depths? Just years and years of experiencing and savoring God's relentless, unyielding grace. Every year brought more failure in Paul. And every year he discovered, wow. You've really been this gracious all along. You're this gracious. You're this gracious. You're this gracious. You know, for those that are in Christ, that's the rest of your life. Stepping by faith to faith on grace upon grace. That's, That's our lot. And it's a lovely lot. What a joy. What a privilege to mimic that Paul, to imitate that Paul as, verse 1, just as I also am of Christ, Paul says. Now, Paul's original imperative verb, his, 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 his command is be becoming imitators of me. Be becoming imitators of me. That verb translates and applies to this phrase, just as I also am becoming an imitator of Christ. This is, this is the apostle Paul. He wrote 13 books of the Bible. And he says, it's a process. I'm becoming an imitator of my king. Would you be becoming an imitator of me as I am becoming an imitator of Jesus? Now, what does that do to him? What does imitating Christ do to him? How does imitating Jesus transform Paul? Well, people want to be near him. We want to be near him. We want to be near people who are like Christ, strong, uncompromising, but true and compassionate. Verse 2, now, I praise you, Paul says to the Corinthians, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. What traditions is he talking about? My goodness, I didn't know that we do traditions. I thought we were a Bible-only people. Well, that's what Paul's referring to. Paul's referring to Scripture. Why does Paul praise them? You've got to remember that he's responding to their letter. They've written him, and he's responding to it. You've got to realize that he's commending them on something they have written him about. So they aren't doing great at everything. We've already realized that. 
But on this one particular issue, this one particular subject, he praises them. How do I know? Well, what does Paul say in the next section? Look at verse 17 of chapter 11. He says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. (laughs) Okay, he's very clear. He's got something he could commend, and he does. And that's such a good lesson for us. Uh, You know, sometimes Christians can sadly be so serious about the Bible that they don't identify marks of grace in other people. Are you identi- are you hungry to find evidences of new life in Christians? Or are you just content to poke at what's lacking in them? That's not the way that Paul pastored, and it's not the way that we ought to love one another. Now, where were they good? Where were they doing well? They are embracing God's designed gender roles and the appropriate signs of authority in public worship, in worship together, in corporate worship as the church. Consequently, this is the first of three matters regarding worship that Paul is going to address, and this is going to extend for a large portion of his letter. So this is gender roles in public worship, corporate worship, where the church gets together for worship. The second is the Lord's Supper, which is the remainder of chapter 11. And then this issue of spiritual gifts, which travels from chapter 12 to chapter 14. So how Christians worship matters. How men and women worship matters. And Paul has prohibited the Corinthians from participating in pagan worship out there, but now he turns his attention to their perversion of Christian worship in here. That's what he's addressing. So Christian, listen carefully here. It is not enough that we stop going out to worship worldly idols, the world's stuff. It's not enough that we just stop that. Our worship of God here, our worship of God in Christ, must remember and hold fast the scriptures. There's actually this principle called the regulative principle. You can read about it in the Westminster Confession of Faith, written ages ago, centuries ago, during the Reformation in England. And the regulative principle is simply this. God's word, scripture, is sufficient on how we worship. God has told us everything that we need for how we worship. And how we worship must be measured by scripture. If we can't justify what we're doing in worship by scripture, it probably ought not to be done. Okay? God wants, God tells us how to worship, not us. Now it's sad that if you think about it, think about how commonly this is completely ignored in American churches. What's the highest value in most American churches when it comes to worship? Expression of how I feel. It's all about how I feel, right? It's an individual experience. God says, no, no, no. I'm telling you how I'm to be worshiped. 
One of Israel's biggest mistakes, one of Israel's earliest mistakes, is that they come out of the Exodus, and then they go and they say, we're going to decide how we worship Yahweh. Uh, Let's make a golden young bull and call that Yahweh and worship it. God says, no way. Aaron's sons, they offered up strange fire. They were doing worship of Yahweh, but they did it in their terms, not according to God's word, and he killed them. I mean, God takes this very seriously. He tells us how he is to be worshipped, and we ought to take that extremely seriously. Point two, understand that authority is theological, verses 3 to 10. He says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, I want you to understand, you hear this term headship. Well, this is where it's coming from. Headship is theological. What do I mean by that? Headship between people, between a husband and a wife, is rooted in who God is. It's a manifestation of who God is. And therefore, it is extremely important. It's timeless. It's not cultural. It's not chronological. This is not something for then and there. This is something for everyone everywhere all the time. This is how God designed gender. Now, let's take a step back before anyone gets too upset about this. I don't think anyone here is going to get upset about it, but let's, let's think about this. God the Son became God-man, the king of all mankind. As such, he submitted himself under God the Father, the King of Heaven. God the Father, the King of Heaven, is the head of God the Son, the King of Earth. Likewise, he made man and woman reflect authority in marriage. It's imitating Christ. It's imitating God. It's it's revealing the Trinity. Now, failure or refusal to do so is failure or refusal to glorify the triune God. This is deeply serious stuff. It's why Satan targets it so much. It's why he opposes this stuff so much. It's getting at who God is. And it's clouding him, cloaking him, from the lost and dying world when we do not bring ourselves under his word. Headship is not cultural. Headship isn't the invention of the patriarchy. Read how many times Paul writes head or alludes to the head in verses 2 to 16. You're going to find the word head 14 times. Now, the verses that are lacking, head explicitly, refer to it, refer to figurative headship. Now, I want to ask you a series of questions. Would we say that the Father's role as King of Heaven over Christ is evil? Hopefully, you would not say that. Okay? Now, would we say that Christ's role as 
king of earth over mankind is evil. Hopefully we wouldn't. Would we thus say that man's role as head or leader of his wife is evil? That's how important Paul is making this point. Now, can we say that husbands sometimes fail, often fail, unlike God the Father and God the Son? Sure, but that does not make, or let's put it in question form, but can we therefore say that headship itself as designed by God is evil? No. The design is good. Is it infected by sin like everything else out there? Absolutely. Do we need to bring our hearts under the authority of God's word and repent when we sin against one another in the context of this design? Absolutely. But the design is good. Headship is good. Male headship in marriage is good. God says good. And that predates sin. So brothers, be imitators of Christ who loves his wife and gave himself up for her and ladies be followers of Jesus be imitators of Jesus Jesus follows his father we both get to demonstrate Christ in our respective roles they're dignified as image bearing roles verses 4 to 5 every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying shames his head but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying shames her head for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved now pause for a moment name this is so important Name the very specific moment when men uncover and women cover the head while doing what? During what? While praying and prophesying within the local church during corporate worship. Okay? This is a very specific context Paul's addressing. Where is it happening? In private? No. One doesn't prophesy, nor is seen, when alone. Paul is addressing proper conduct in a very specific part of public corporate worship when the church is together. Both men and women of the New Testament church actively worshipped as image bearers, as redeemed by the blood. Neither man or woman are prohibited from either praying or prophesying in the early church. Now, it's probably causing some curiosity. We're going to get more into this as, as, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians. But prophesying was a critical portion of early Christian worship as the New Testament was being written. Now, think about this. What books did the Corinthians have when Paul wrote this letter? They had the Old Testament. And maybe James, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians. Maybe. They don't even have a single one of the Gospels yet. They know the Gospel, but they don't have one of the Gospel books. They don't have most of Paul's epistles. They don't have John's epistles. They don't have Peter's epistles. They don't have Revelation. Like, that's so much that we cherish. 
And so what, therefore, is critical? What do they need? They need the Holy Spirit, who is currently at this time inspiring the scriptures to be written, teaching them what is going to be found in those books, what you and I take for granted. And he does that through prophets at that time. Now, through prophets, he spoke. As this was foretold by the prophet Joel. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. God said in the Old Testament, this is centuries before Christ, it will be afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, even on the male slaves and female slaves, I will in those days pour out my spirit. I think we have every reason in the world, as we read in Joel 2, There are other things that are mentioned that are going to happen in the future that clearly are not going to continue happening, but they're going to happen for a time. And I think that applies as well to this. It's incredible, isn't it? God doesn't say that this is going to continue forever. In fact, I personally believe this is not something to fight with Christians about. I am personally overwhelmingly convinced that this specific thing where God was sending prophets in the New Testament church, that it lasted from Pentecost, day one of the church's foundation, to sometime around or sometime after, shortly after John's revelation was written down, and the Bible was thus completed. That's the use of prophets. Prophets are speaking word of God, but when you've got the word of God complete, there's no longer any need for prophets speaking what they can't find in scripture. One theologian said, um, if what you say as a word from the Lord agrees with scripture, it's unnecessary because I could just find it in scripture. If it disagrees with scripture, it's heresy. So there's no need any longer for prophets today. In the future, In the future, before the return of Christ, we're told that two prophets are going to come and they're going to prophesy in Jerusalem. So do do I believe that God never does anything like that any longer? Done? Period? End of sentence? Absolutely not. But he tells us when he's going to do that. And we don't have any reason right now to suspect that there's anything called a prophet in the biblical sense today. Now, speaking of that, we think that some women in the Corinthian church, we can only piece this together. It's speculation. Some women in the church were defying the the gender-specific guidelines that God's word had given, arguing that Jesus had said, and he did say, that we would be like the angels in the resurrected life, neither married nor given in marriage, and therefore, we don't need gender roles. You see? Well, they had confused eschatology. We think. That's what's happening. So Paul continues, verse 6, For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut short. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut short, which it was, or to have her hair shaved, her head shaved, let her cover her head. Do you know what he's just said? Do, Do you get it? Let me give you an illustration. Were any of you picky eaters as kids? Maybe some of you are still picky eaters. Okay, we've got a show of hands. Picky eaters? Okay, still today? Okay. 
Yeah, they're a lively crowd tonight. Jake used to swallow his lima beans with water like they were pills. He was so disgusted by them. It's an effective way to get him down. I remember distinctly, we would sit at the table for what felt like hours as we were waiting for picky eater to, to, to finish his food. Our parents had a pretty strict, you're going you're gonna to clean that plate. Now, what do parents say in that situation? What do they say? If you don't eat what's on your plate, you don't eat at all. I'm not going to give you something else. And you're certainly not getting dessert, right? There's a sense in which Paul is saying that. If these naughty ladies do not cover their head, they should shave their hair. If that's what you're going to do. Ancient women were decorating their hair very decadently. Actually, much more than we would see today. Today, we're, it's pretty mild. But, but back then, in the ancient times, they would throw jewelry and they would style it. It was a, it was a very uh, important part of women's fashion. And so it was utterly and absolutely unthinkable to imagine a woman shaving her hair all off. That would just be a disgrace. And Paul says, a buzz cut is bad. You don't want that. So cover up while praying and prophesying. It's pretty simple, huh, ladies? Like that, That's the way that he's, he's appealing to them. Verse 7 to 9. 4. A man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Now, you ladies might be feeling uncomfortable here. That's okay. It's going to make a lot of sense in a second. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. We don't apologize for the word of God here. We're not shy with the word of God here. The word of God is the word of God, and we're stupid idiots. Okay, so we're going to trust God. God made Adam in the image and likeness of the second Adam. You want to know one of the craziest plot twists in scripture? We're told that God made man in God's image and the image and likeness of God in which God made man was the future descendant of Adam, the second Adam, Christ. So God imagined, Ephesians 5 says, I made male, female, husband, wife to foreshadow Christ and the church. So God didn't make man and woman, husband and wife, and then when they fail, he went, shoot, okay, we've got to fix this. What are we going to do? Okay, so... I can come as a man and I'll save my people and I'll allude to marriage. Yeah, that's a great illustration. That's not what happened. Now, here's the freaky thing. If God originally made man and woman, husband and wife, to prefigure Christ in the church, what was always the plan for history? Christ dying for the sins of his bride. What was always going to happen? Why did God create in the first place? It wasn't plan A for things to go great and sin not to enter. And then sin entered and he had to make plan B. 
the only plan. It wasn't even plan A. The only plan was, I'm not just a creator. I'm a redeemer. I must show my mercy. And I can only show mercy to sinful creatures. So I'm going to give them freedom of will. And guess what they're going to do with freedom of will? They're going to exercise that freedom. So many people out there make a big deal about their freedom of will. They're so protective of their freedom of will. Freedom of will has sent a lot of people to hell, but it's never sent one person to heaven. So you could protect your freedom of will, but it hasn't done you any good whatsoever. It got us into this mess. I've distracted myself. God made Adam in the likeness and image, the image and likeness of the second Adam, Christ. God made Eve from Adam and brought her to Adam as the crown jewel of creation. Man, mankind, humans, are the crown jewel of creation and among those mankind, women, when you read the narrative, it's like, oh, God is bringing her to Adam going, he is going to flip. And Adam breaks out in spontaneous poetry upon seeing her. Listen to the way that he speaks. Genesis 2.23. This is Adam. He sees her. I love the language. And the LSV does a great job with this. He says, this one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman. Because this one was taken out of man. Yeah, you've heard the corny joke. I think Richie's telling it over there. That that's how women are called women. Because it was he said, Whoa, man, when he saw her. Why did God make her? Why did God make Eve? We're told there in Genesis two, eighteen. Then Yahweh God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Ephesians 5, to 23 is where you can see how God did this to prefigure Christ and the church. So here's my point. Here's Paul's point. Nothing in 1 Corinthians 11, that feels kind of weird. Nothing in 1 Corinthians 11 is scandalous when read beside Genesis 2. Nothing should surprise us here. Verse 10. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. <laughs> it's like, Paul, if you couldn't make this weird enough, I mean, because of the angels? Are you kidding me? Now, pay close attention to two significant details. Notice the language of symbolism. That's so important because that's going to inform why none of the ladies in here are wearing head coverings, at least not the kind of head coverings that, that Paul's talking about. Okay? This is not something that we practice here at Trinity Community Church, and it's because of the language Paul uses of symbolism. That's so important. Then, a second thing to notice, notice the reason for this symbol. So, what is Paul primarily concerned about? An outward visible display of invisible authority. That's what he's primarily concerned about. And why is Paul primarily concerned about it? 
something to do with angels. We don't know. Well, we do know. We're going to get to it here in a sec. But we don't know yet, do we? You don't know yet. I do, because I studied this, right? At least I think I know. Lord knows. Why don't we have head coverings here at Trinity Community Church? Reagan's wearing a beanie. Okay, I don't think she's doing it because she has to wear a head. Are you are you wearing that as a head covering? Okay, you feel comfortable taking that off right now? Okay, no, you wouldn't. Okay, well, we'll talk afterwards, Reagan. Really simple answer. We don't have individuals standing before the church to pray or to prophesy. We don't have anyone prophesying. We don't have anyone standing in front of the church in corporate worship who's not church leadership. We have our shepherds, we have our elders, they're all men performing that function in our church. Therefore, we don't have any problems of confusion about this specific issue that they were having in the Corinthian church. No confusion over authority or gender roles, which is expressly what the word of God is stressing in this passage. But why in the world does Paul involve angels? Well, you remember we think that women used our likeness to angels in the resurrection to justify their removal of gender roles. We think that's what's going on. And so I think that's why Paul invokes angels here. And Paul says, think about this. This is great stuff. Think of the perfectly submitted angels who watch us and minister to us. They are in perfect submission to God. They serve God perfectly, yet they're watching you throw off authority? Can you imagine how these angels who are sent by God to minister to the church, longing to see God glorified, are watching God's image bearers, redeemed by the blood, say, nah, we'll throw off the authority. They would be stunned. What? What are you doing? Authority is beautiful. Submission to authority is wonderful. Our God is good. Are you telling the world that your God's not good? That is... Some of you have probably heard through the the grapevine that I am dating a young lady in London. It's true. Things have gotten pretty serious. She's a gorgeous, gorgeous little Colombian gal by the name of Maria. And she earns over twice as much as I do. She is a really neat lady, young lady younger than me. Yet, she says she's successful. She's in banking in London. It's a big deal. And she said yesterday, I was actually studying, we're on a call and both of us were studying. She's having a study for Bible Institute and I'm studying for tonight. And I joked with her. I said, hey, I just read a really good scripture that I think you should, uh, you should hear. She said, what is it? I said, I read, you know, uh, man did not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for man's sake. I said, that's my new favorite Bible verse. 
And I was joking with her, of course. She knew it and she laughed. And I said, you know, I, I just wish you were here right now. And she said, I really wish I was there too. And I said, no, 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 no. I, I wish you were here so you can make me a snack. <laughs> okay, so we're clearly joking. If you think that I'm chauvinistic, it's a total joke. And she said, and I quote, one of the sweetest moments, she said, you know what? I would be so happy to leave my job, to leave everything, and to support you and help you and make you snacks. Talk about heaping burning coals on your head, right? Like, I'm joking, and she piled it on. But that is so, the world would look at that and say, she's crazy. She's crazy. And the Lord looks at her and says, that is precious in my sight. It humbled me. She, there was another thing that she had thought that she could do in, in life, and she started studying the word of God discovered that wasn't appropriate for women in the church. And her response was, God's role for women is so generous. Wow. That's how godly women read the word. They go, my God's so generous. What, how amazing that God would protect me and tell me, just encourage and pray for those men to lead. I'm going to judge those men more strictly. I, I'm sparing you ladies from that. My daughters, I'm sparing you from that extra judgment. And godly women say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. And I'll pray and I'll support and I'll encourage. You see how beautiful that is? And men, we had better take it seriously. The role that God has given us as leaders, as leaders in the church. Thirdly and lastly, I know we're going over time. Please forgive me. I shouldn't have drawn attention to that. Please forgive me for drawing attention to that. Please forgive me for saying, please forgive me. Uh, thirdly and finally, oh, Mark, did you want to show a couple? I figured you guys would like to see uh, a couple pictures. So those are some pictures. Maria's on the right there, and then that's Maria and I with my friend Pastor Tom in London. I figured you guys would want to see that, so I'm not making her up, but just for a sermon illustration. Yeah. Thirdly, in Christ, in Christ, men and women are distinct, they're different, yet interdependent. Verses 11 to 16. Paul says, nevertheless, in the Lord, that's in Christ, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. But all things originate from God. Isn't God amazing how he does that? It's just incredible. He's, he's brilliant. Men and women depend on one another. We depend on one another. This is amazing. None of us, as Satan wants men and women to think that they're strong and independent and they don't need each other. How many of you have found yourself thinking that, saying that? God says, not so fast. Women, woman came from man. Man or men come from women. And God made both of them. He made them the way he likes them to be. We don't get to define what a woman is, what a man is. He does that for us. Women are women. They're the kind of humans that can give 
birth to children, and men are men. And that settles it. It's, it's done. Verses 13 to 15. Paul now says, he lands the plane and he says, judge for yourselves. Judge for yourselves. In other words, Paul's saying, I don't need to spoon feed you answers. You aren't babies. Think it through. You've got this. And he asks the question that he's been answering this whole time. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered, without a symbol of authority, that she's under authority? Is it proper? Is it appropriate? Is it good and lovely? Godly? That's the problem that all of us can solve now. You, you answer. You tell us what God has said on the matter. Is it proper? Is it appropriate? Is it glorifying to God? Is it displaying headship when a woman prays in worship without regard for visible signs of authority, that she's operating under authority? And what's the answer that we judge for ourselves? It's not appropriate for her to do that. Now, does not even, Paul continues, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. So once we've judged for ourselves, Andrew, uh, cut the man bun off, Gordon, Okay, we've got to go. No, before you go commiserate over the fact that you've got long hair. Once we've judged for ourselves, Paul lets down his hair, pun intended, and he's a little bit cheeky here. Okay, so he's, he's being a bit of a rascal. He's being fun. He's, he says here, I'm glad that we agree. You judged for yourself. You agreed with me. Okay. Now, come on. This is, this is obvious when you look at nature. Now, we read this and we're like, what? Men and women can grow long hair. What are you talking Women cut their hair short. What are you talking about? It's obvious in nature. Do you know that Paul is scientifically accurate? This is crazy. Testosterone speeds the three-stage cycle of hair growth so that men go quickly from stage one, hair growth, to stage three, hair loss. Estrogen keeps women in the first stage of hair growth much longer. So women, in a given time, men, women will definitely grow hair more long, more beautiful than men do in the same amount of time. Scientifically proven. It's common to see bald men not so common to see bald women. Now, Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, said this ages before Paul wrote. He said, I have never seen a bald child, like child, not a, not a baby, but child. I've never seen a bald eunuch, and I've never seen a bald woman. What's the same about all three of those? They either lack or have low testosterone, Right? So Paul's saying, this is science, baby. It's, it's nature. Verse 16, and then we close. But if one is inclined to be contentious, if one's inclined to, to, to fight with what I've written here, just let him know we have no other practice. You don't have an alternative. Nor have the churches of God. 
So what does he mean? What is Paul saying? He says, if someone wants to disagree with what I've written here, they'll at least least need one apostle to agree with them. They'll at least need one local church that affirms their interpretation. Guess what? Not a single apostle has a different opinion from what I've said. In fact, at this present moment, not a single local church is disobeying this rule. So you would be completely and utterly by yourselves, and that is not a good place to be in your interpretation of Scripture. It's neither safe nor right. So let's mimic the faith, let's imitate the practice of the apostles as written in God's word, and let's enjoy our good God's great design for our benefit and our happiness. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us a heart that's enlarged to your designs, to your roles for us. This displays Christ and the church. And as we get to sing in closing, we want our passion to be your glory in the church. Help us, Lord, especially as our culture goes crazy with confusion about these matters. Make us a beacon of gospel beauty and light and strength. For Christ's sake, we pray it. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. And if you're interested in a great Bible college here in the area, check out calchristiancollege.edu. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.